In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we welcome you to the All Souls Sermon Podcast. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Is sin dangerous? Where is the harm in it? The church speaks about seven deadly sins, but are there such things? Are sins, in fact, deadly? Are pride and envy and all the rest really so dangerous in the end? It used to be that sin was a word that felt as weighty and terrible as a word like cancer feels to us. But as someone says, these days the concept of sin has been changed from a Rottweiler into a poodle. It has been defanged. The force has been drawn out, and it no longer makes us tremble in our boots. Sin no longer seems so dangerous. Indeed, increasingly in our culture, what was once seen to be sin is now thought of as virtuous. For example, not long ago, a series of little books on the seven deadly sins was published. The volume on lust was written by the philosopher Simon Blackburn, who said that his aim in writing was to rescue lust, quote, from the denunciations of old men in the deserts, to deliver it from the pallid and envious confessor and the stalks and pillories of the Puritans, to drag it from the category of sin to that of virtue. This view of things is becoming more and more common, and of course, not only about lust. Sin, it seems, has become not so dangerous after all. Naughty, but nice. The Bible, though, paints a very different picture of sin, in which sin is not seen simply as a matter of breaking a few rules, but more a matter of destructive habits. That is, sin names patterns of life which may outwardly please, but end up being poisonous. An image for this destructive effects of sin came across recently when I heard about an old technique for plating objects with gold called mercury gilding. In mercury gilding, a craftsman dissolves gold into liquid mercury and then mixes them together to form an amalgam, which is then applied to the object that is meant to be coated with gold. Then heat is applied to the torch and the mercury evaporates, leaving behind a thick, even coat of gold. However, there's a major problem with this technique. Because it is difficult for the craftsmen involved to avoid inhaling the evaporated mercury fumes. And consistent exposure can result in mercury poisoning, which can cause severe neurological damage, and if you've had enough of it, even death. So you might say that, like mercury gilding, sin may bring pleasure for a time, may be pleasant on the surface all the while wreaking havoc on the soul, like mercury poisoning. 
St. Peter warns against dangers that war against the soul. Sin not only damages my own soul, but also damages my relationships with my neighbors, with my family, with the whole created order, ultimately with the Lord. It puts everything out of whack. Sin is poisonous, and it leads, in the end, to death. If that's the case, if sin is, in fact, deadly dangerous, then half measures against it will not suffice. And that is the thrust of what Jesus has to say in our gospel lesson today. If thy hand defend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Sin cannot be dealt with lightly. You have to take more drastic measures. Now, some Christians have taken our Lord's words literally when he talks about cutting off parts of the body. There's a vivid example of this in a short story by Tolstoy called Father Sergius. The title character Father Sergius is a monk who's living a solitary life of prayer as a hermit. And one winter evening, a group of worldly revelers happens by, and among them is a woman who decides in a lark that she wants to try to spend the night with the monk. Father Sergius reluctantly welcomes her into his tiny hut only after she acts as if she's been freezing and without shelter. And he closes himself off in another room while she takes her wet wraps off before the fire. It's not clear what her motives are. She may just want to embarrass him. Perhaps she wants to seduce him. But whatever the case is, Father Sergius finds himself grievously tempted by her presence there. To avoid succumbing to temptation, praying fervently, he takes an axe and chops off one of his fingers. The woman sees his bloody hand, and she is cut to the quick. She returns to her group, and eventually she becomes a nun. Now, you could say a lot of things about this story, and there's a lot more to the story than that. But what I find compelling about it is Father Sergius's recognition that sin would bring greater harm to him than the loss of his finger. Having said that, I want to say clearly that I don't think our Lord means us to take literally what he says about chopping off hands and feet and gouging out eyes. Rather, I take him to mean that we must make absolutely no allowance for sin. We must give sin no quarter, no foothold at all, because to indulge sin is to set out on the way that leads to destruction, to what our Lord calls Gehenna, to hell, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. In other words, We ought to understand the hand and the foot 
and the eye that Jesus speaks of symbolically. And actually, I think in this way, they have a more radical meaning than thinking of them literally. It turns out that cutting off your finger doesn't cut deeply enough. The way that the terms are used throughout the Holy Scriptures, the hand and foot and eye, is often in this symbolic way. In the Bible, the hand frequently serves as a symbol for intentional human action, as in, for example, the phrase, the work of our hands, which doesn't mean handmade goods or handicrafts, but more broadly, what we have done, the actions we have committed. And that's the sense at work in our epistle lesson today, when St. James writes, cleanse your hands, ye sinners. He's not being Dr. Fauci. He is not dispensing public health advice here, obviously. What he means is something like, repent, stop committing sins, stop doing that. Similarly, in the biblical idiom, the foot suggests movement toward a particular goal, walking in a particular direction, either in the narrow way that leads to life or in the broad way that leads in the end to death. As in the first psalm, which begins, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. And so too with the eye, which can be taken to symbolize the means in which, the means by which temptation to sin enters in, comes to us. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, links the eye to lust in particular, but he also speaks of it more broadly as just the general way in which we are tempted to sin. He says, the light of the body is the eye, and therefore if thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. Taken together, we can understand that when Jesus speaks of cutting off your hand or your foot and plucking out your eye, he means something like, don't commit sin. Don't take a step toward it. Don't even think about it. You must give it absolutely no place in your heart. St. James writes, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Now, commenting on this passage, the early medieval English saint known as the Venerable Bede, which, by the way, is my favorite name for a saint, the Venerable Bede says that we are far from God, not by distance, but by disposition. We are not far from God by distance, but by disposition, by the inclination of our hearts. And that gets us to the heart of the matter. Our basic problem is with our dispositions, with the inclination of our hearts, with our desires. They are disordered, out of whack, Our wills are bent and damaged so that we have in us an inclination to sin. And this remains true even when we have turned to the Lord and are cleansed of the guilt of sins in baptism. Our desires remain disordered, and it's only through the grace of the Holy Spirit 
working in our hearts that we do not continually succumb to temptation and that we are gradually uh, brought to have desires that are ordered more and more toward the love of God and our neighbor. In this respect, every Christian is like an addict in recovery. And like an addict, the only way to stay sober, as it were, is through absolute abstinence from the causes of sin. As a recovering alcoholic organizes their whole life around avoiding the temptation to drink, so too we ought to order our whole lives around avoiding the temptation to sin. The only way that we're going to be willing to take such drastic actions to cut off and pluck out our hand and foot and eye, the only way we'll take such drastic action is to recognize the deadly peril our addiction poses to us, to our neighbors, to our families, to acknowledge that we cannot help ourselves, that we are utterly dependent on the higher power of God. In short, we must, as St. James says, humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. We do this when we, with truly penitent and contrite hearts, turn from sin, confess our sins to the Lord God, and recognize that we have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts, that there is no health in us. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, says St. James. But did you notice that he doesn't end there? He goes on to say, and the Lord will lift you up. That is the promise of the gospel. We are not left abandoned in our sins, but the Lord lifts us up from the death of sin to new life of grace. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the Christian life is not one of gloomy penitence or puritanical repression. Rather, it's a life meant to be characterized by joy, by the deep joy of knowing the extent of God's mercies towards us, towards me individually. And it's a joy that paradoxically increases the more the Lord reveals to me the extent of my own sinfulness, the joy that anticipates entering into life, enjoying the foretaste of eternal life, which we experience even now, a life of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Therefore, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our, of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of All Souls Episcopal Church. For service times and more information, go to allsoulsokc.com. God be with you.